So I guess I'm going to start today as I, as I typically find myself doing when I come up in front of you with, with a little bit of confession. Uh, I tend to have a problem that I think, or at least I hope many of you can relate to. Um, and um, it's, it's not quite an obvious problem when you just look at it on the surface. In fact, if you were not careful, you might look at this as uh, not a problem, but maybe a strength. Uh, and since I'm up here talking, I, I figured I better give it a creative name. So I call it the illusion of capability. So in my own life, uh, I find myself taking this posture of uh, a capability. And what I mean by that is, is I've, I've kind of set my life up in a, in a certain way that in, in most of my day-to-day decisions, I'm very comfortable with analyzing, assessing situations, and making decisions, sometimes with alarming confidence. Um, and, and I want to be very clear here. This is not a strength. This is a very dangerous character flaw. And why do I say it's a dangerous character flaw? Because um, as good as I think I am, I usually come to realize I'm not that great. And I'm not just being down on myself. What I mean by that is um, I I very easily find it um, appropriate to make decisions without the need to go outside of myself for counsel, whether that's another person, whether that's somebody that I'm I'm being mentored by, but most especially as it relates to to going to the Lord. Um, I I find myself making decisions and saying, you know, I, I... didn't even really pray about that. I didn't even consider uh, other options. I just made the decision. And um, when I look back on that, I find out, wow, I, I, a lot of times I missed the boat. I missed an opportunity or I made the wrong decision. Um, so there's situations where I can act in the moment and be glad of the outcome. Sure, sometimes it works out for me, but not often. So the reason I bring that up is because I have been freshly reminded of that reality in studying for this message. I have been uh, diving deep into God's word about election and salvation. And this is a journey that I've been on for a good 20 years at least. And so as I, as I got to looking at this passage and, and, and you know, the Lord is faithful to continue to illuminate himself to me, I find myself wondering how in the world am I going to take this passage, this concept that has so much emotion behind it, has caused so many disagreements and splits in the past, and how am I going to effectively communicate that to God's people? And I took a quick self-assessment, and I came away with, I can't. I can't do this, Lord. Send somebody else. I'm not going to be able to make this happen. Um, we're going to look at things this morning that are very heavy, and and when I try and find the words to communicate them, uh, they just don't seem to be there. So I'm freshly aware of, of the need that I have of the Lord this morning to communicate to you. I'm freshly aware of the need that we all have of the Lord to, to guide us into truth. Um, so while that's frustrating, uh, when, I, when I think about the things I'm trying to communicate this morning that, that can be daunting, um, it, it's these very same doctrines that reach out to me w- with grace and mercy. And, and they teach me about a God who is all loving and is all knowledgeable and is merciful and just and seeks to give us the understanding that we desire. So I'm going to attempt with the Lord's help to communicate some of these things to you. Um, and in the process, I'm going to be leaning heavily on some people that are much smarter than I am, much more eloquent than I am to help me make some of these points. Um, but that's what we're going to be doing. And like I said, we're, we're going to be talking about some very heavy things this morning. We're going to be looking at doctrines that cause a lot of disagreements, even friendly disagreements. There's going to be people in this congregation this morning that are going to be in various different sides of the spectrum as regards to salvation, man's role in salvation, God's provision in salvation. 
And so we've got a, a fairly daunting task. Now, what I want to illuminate first is that Romans, the letter of Romans, in particular Romans 9, was not a letter that was written to cause division. This was not something that was meant to cause confusion. That wasn't the intent or the purpose. This was a letter that was written first to the original readers and then obviously through God's provision onto us um, that was meant to bring unity and clarity to the body. It was meant to illuminate God and who he is in a, in a more clear way to, to bring a more full understanding of who he is. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Um, and it's a daunting task, but it's by no means a lost cause. Uh, it's, it's especially in these moments when we're kind of tempted to look at, at a difficult doctrine, to throw our hands up and say, well, who, who can even know? Uh, it, it's at these moments that we have to remember who wrote this word, who inspired this word. This word was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. God has given us his full and complete revelation that we need. It's not everything that God has to say on everything, but it's everything that we need and he's given that to us. And there's not one word that's placed in Scripture erroneously. And there's not one concept that's given to us that doesn't really need to be thought through. Uh, and there's not anything written in Scripture that the Holy Spirit can't interpret and teach and lead us in all truth in. So it's with that confidence that I want us to approach our topic this morning. Um, in this passage, there's, there's much to be learned about God. There's much to be learned about our salvation and there's much to be learned about ourselves. So let's go this morning right now to uh, the author and ask him to do what only he can do in helping us study this morning. Father, we come to you this morning desperate for your spirit. Lord, as, as I've looked at this and... and contemplated and thought through and practiced what to say. The only thing that's clear to me over all that is that, Lord, I'm not capable. And, and Father, it's such a great place for me to be. Father, you desire to teach us. Your word is your revelation to us. Your Holy Spirit is you living inside of us. Father, we go to that trust we have in you right now. Father, that you would open our eyes, that you would pierce our heart, that you would teach us who you are and who we are. That, Lord, we might not be focused on high theology, we might not argue for one theological doctrine over the other, but, Lord, that we might practically come to know you better, more deeply, more fully, and in that revelation, Lord, that we might experience your joy more completely. Father, do this work within us this morning. Lord, speak through my words. Open our hearts and our minds. We ask this in confidence through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, I mentioned that I've been dealing with this uh, situation or this topic kind of on and off for about 20 years. So, when I grew up, I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, and, and I basically went to Christian school my entire life. And so for the first, uh, well, in, in the town that we grew up in, there was basically two avenues for Christian school. There was a school that was run by an Assemblies of God church, and then there was a school that was run by a Presbyterian church. And if you know anything about the two denominations, let's just say they are very different on a number of a lot of topics. So the first seven years of my life, uh, up until about the 
sixth grade, I guess it was, I went to the church, uh, the school that was uh, affiliated with the Assemblies of God. And they didn't have any grades past six. So a good chunk of us that grew up in this paradigm or this school transferred over to the Presbyterian school to continue Christian education on through high school. And so it was during this transition that I was confronted with this idea of predestination, election. Uh, And I remember well the Bible classes that we had where the class was almost split down the middle. Those who had grown up in the Presbyterian uh, tradition and had gone to this school for a while, this was just old hat. This was nothing new. They're talking about predestination and election and things like that. Um, Those of us who were from an Assembly of God church had never even heard those words. And then when we started to hear the doctrine that was being described, um, it was very different than, than, than our view of salvation. Um, we started talking about Calvinism. We started talking about tulip, which is the most divisive flower that's ever been created on God's green earth. Uh, if, if tulip is an acrostic that explains the doctrines of Calvinism. But we, we started looking at these things, and, and a majority of us, myself included, found the very idea of election or predestination offensive. And, 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 and outright rejected the concept at all. So as I participated in the arguments and rejected this notion, that kind of dictated my, my views on it for the next several years. But as, as I've been the last three, four, five years maybe, just kind of gradually being drawn back to reevaluating this, it's, it's interesting that, that almost every preacher or theologian or speaker that I respect that I'll listen to that's outside of my own local community even, but these great people that I respect almost to a person ratify the doctrine of election. And a lot of them are very, very what's called reformed. And so I see that, and I see this wisdom here, and they all believe something that I don't quite believe, and it causes me to ask why. Am am, am I just uniquely intelligent in an area that they're not, or do I have the right understanding? And I I say that gently because I don't want to insult anybody who is of the position that election is is not quite the way that they understand salvation. But... It, it, it's caused me to kind of go back and reevaluate. And so when I really stopped to think about why I outright had rejected election in the first place, what I've come to realize is that I was really rejecting the idea of election in the way that it was presented to me, in the way that I understood what the speaker was saying. And so I've come to realize that I kind of made some some bad logical jumps. I I look at what they were saying, and I take a couple of logical leaps, and then it takes me to a destination that I wasn't at all comfortable with. And so part of that was was immaturity, and part of that was, like I said, faulty logic. But a large part of it was wrestling with these tough doctrines and trying to understand, what does this tell me about my God? What does this say about the nature of my God? And the way that I was interpreting it led me to a place where I said, I, I, I don't think that's, that's the God I serve, and that, that, that means I'm going to reject this doctrine outright. But as, again, as I've said, I've been on this journey. I've been studying election. I've been listening to a lot of people, but primarily just studying what Scripture has to say on it. And, and I, I've, I've come more recently to embrace the doctrine with more and more vigor. So what I want to do this morning is I want to share a bit of the journey I've gone on uh, as I've embraced this, this doctrine. Um, and, and our passage is going to guide us through that, but I'm going to kind of structure the message today in the way that I kind of came to, to, to this conclusion. Some of, the, some of the problems I had with it and how I've addressed the, how, how the Lord has, has addressed those. Some of the challenges that I've had and, and some of the revelation that I've seen through God's word that addresses those. And, and, and my hope is, is to kind of bring you through this process in the same way that I came through it and hopefully to show you how um, the doctrine of election is a beautiful doctrine that should serve to inspire the non-Christian with a massive amount of hope and should 
ensure the Christian with a massive amount of humility, but also a tremendous amount of peace and security in who their Heavenly Father is. So that's what we're going to attempt to do this morning. Um, so if you remember from last week, Colin was reading uh, Romans 9, 1 through uh, 13, and we ended in verses 12 and 13, some of the toughest passages, in, in my opinion, in all of Scripture to read, talking about God hating somebody, talking about what that means. And so we're going to pick that up, and for context's sake, I'm going to back up to verse 10. So if you have your Bibles with me, I hope that you do. Open up to Romans 9, and we're going to start in verse 10, and we're going to go through verse 24. So Paul here is, is talking about this concept of who are the true children of God. He's just got done explaining that God's promises to Israel, that they will be heirs of the promise, is not failed. But he's going to redefine what a child of Israel really means. Who are the true children of God? So pick it up in verse 10. Paul says here, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called not from the jews only but also from the gentiles so if we had to pick a theme here paul paul is paul is explaining the process of god's election but, but if I had, to, if I had to, to identify a theme for our passage this morning, I would say it's, it's God's justice. Paul is bringing up the question of, is God just? And he's introduced a, a, a mechanism in his preaching called what's commonly referred to as the unnamed objector, this person who's asking these questions back to Paul. And the unnamed objector is really kind of questioning or putting God to the test of, hey, is this just? And so that's what Paul is asking and defending in this area. So, so Paul, def- he, he introduces a series of doctrinal statements regarding election and the work of salvation. And, and these questions that the unnamed objector uh, is, is stating, do you ever find yourself saying, God, I sure am glad that person asked that question, right? And I think that we, we should as we wrestle through these, these scriptures. These questions are seeking to understand who is God? What is his justice? What is his love? Who does he look like? Is this fair? What do we mean by fair? All of those things are good questions. And asked in the right way, they're, they're what we should wrestle through as we come through and we try and understand what is, what is God's purpose in salvation? Why has he even orchestrated salvation at all? So, so these are the questions that we're going to think through. But before we do that, I think it's, it, it would be beneficial for us to define a few terms before we move forward because um, we're going to be using some terms uh, kind of repeatedly, and I want to make sure that we're all on the same page as to what we're talking about. And you might vary in your interpretation of these terms. 
I guess I'm the one with the microphone, so we have to go with my definition for right now. But uh, just, just as a general idea to explain what we're, what we're trying to get at. So the first term I want us to look at is election. So this is commonly referred to as predestination, appointment, calling. My definition of election um, is that it's, it's the idea that God sovereignly chooses all those who would ever be saved by his own will completely independently and separate of any qualities, traits, or righteousness on the recipient's behalf. So uh, it's commonly referred to as unconditional election, the you and tulip, is, is this idea that God chooses people for salvation completely unconditional on any qualities that they possess, right? There's nothing that the person who is saved possesses that causes God to say, ah, I see that in you, and because I see that in you, I am electing or offering salvation to you. That, that's, that's the confession that we believe that he, he is not saying that. Uh, the next two, are, are, are we're not going to really talk a whole lot about them. Um, I just wanted to, to identify them a little bit because um, people that talk about this, they generally fall into one or two camps, not always, but you've got Calvinism and Arminianism. So Calvinism is a, uh, it's a doctrine of salvation, and, and it's articulated by and named after John Calvin. So he was in the 1500s, a very great Re- Reformation theologian. Um, and he basically outlined this process, and others have built on his work, that basically um, it's primarily focused on God's sovereign will in relationship to salvation. That's not all Calvinism is, but when we talk about Calvinism, that's some of the main things that people are referring to. Um, the other one is Arminianism. Um, this is commonly referred to as one of the, um, the antithesis to Calvinism. It's definitely not the only um, differing view than, our, than Calvinism, but it is one of the most popular ones. Um, and this was uh, articulated by and uh, named after Jacob Arminius, another, another good theologian, great theologian in the 15 and early 1600s. Uh, Arminianism, Arminianism differs from Calvinism in that um, the role of man's choice in the salvation process is really uh, on prominent display. It's not God's sovereign will so much as it is man's choice that brings uh, salvation into reality. Uh, we're not going to talk really a whole lot about those two, but I just wanted to get them out there just um, just, just for your understanding. Um, but as I name some of these terms, uh, I'm very acutely aware that um, these terms bring with them a whole host of preconceived notions and meanings. Um, if you're anything like I was, um, um, the very talk of predestination um, usually caused me to tune out, which gave me a problem when I was reading the Bible and I saw the word, I would usually just skip over it. Um, but I hesitated on bringing them up, but uh, the only reason I hesitate is I don't want those preconceived notions to get in the way of what we're trying to do this morning. So to the best of your ability, just take all the thoughts and ideas you have associated with these words, anything you've heard in the past, and just put it off to the side for a few minutes and just try to freshly look at this this concept, these words, um, for the first time and, and just to, to try and get at what are they really saying. So the first thing I want to do is... I want to illustrate how thoroughly biblical the concept of election is. Um, a lot of positions, theological positions, have been built off of a very narrow interpretation of a very few amount of verses. It's very dangerous to build a theological argument or position on one piece of the Bible alone, right? We take the entirety of Scripture together, and if our theological position doesn't jive with the entirety of Scripture, then we throw it out. It's not the right understanding, because Scripture interprets itself. And God isn't going to say one thing in one verse and mean something completely different in the other verse. It might seem like he is sometimes, right? We read a couple of things that seem to be conflicting, but they all come when we look at those two conflicting points in the entirety of Scripture, and they come to paint a cohesive doctrine, a cohesive position that God is giving us. So I want to first show you that the idea of predestination is not this idea that crops up in Romans 8, 29, 
and leaves our lives forever at the end of Romans 11. It's, it's scattered throughout the Bible. So let's take a look at a few of these verses this morning. The first one we are going to look at is Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Acts 13, 48, this is Paul. He gets up to a synagogue and he preaches uh, the word of God to the Jews. And then he ends on this statement that basically extends God's salvation to the Gentiles. And it says in this verse, before we get to what we're about to read, the Gentiles greatly rejoiced when they heard Paul say that. And Acts 13, 48 says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. John 15 through 16, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should divide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. John 6, says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So, so this is just a sample of verses that talk about God's appointment or God's plan things that he's done in advance, completely independent of our own choice, or our own part in this. Um, and, and so we see this in, in, in scripture. So we see that the concept of election is, is thoroughly biblical. Now we just get down to, well, what do we mean by election, right? Okay, I can see the word predestined being used. What does predestined mean? Um, and so the question is not then if it's true, but how do we understand it? One of the most common pushbacks that you'll find to the doctrine of election is the idea that if God has elected only some people to go to heaven, then that means he sentenced others to go to hell. And, and in one sense, yeah, that's absolutely true. I and mean, we see that throughout scripture. We see that um, there's going to be a portion of people, a large portion of people, that are going to uh, enter into an eternity outside of a relationship with Christ, right? They, they, they will never come to a saving relationship of Jesus Christ and be reconciled to the Father. And so scripture is clear that those people who die outside of Christ will find themselves eternally separated from Christ. Um, and, and, and there's even some variance of, of positions within the evangelical community about um, what does that really mean. But one of, the, one of the core structures of Christianity, one of the essentials of the faith, is that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has enabled us to bridge the gap between God and that, that through that death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus has brought us into relationship with the Father, thus giving us an eternal security in the presence of the Father. But we see here in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So everybody who believes the Bible is true will believe this truth, that, that it's through Christ that we're reconciled to the Father. Hebrews 12.2 says it this way, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we see here God purposed not only the founding of our faith through Jesus Christ, but the perfecter of our faith. He, he apportioned our faith to happen, and then he went, walked perfectly through the Father's will, died on the cross, was raised, and has enabled us to, to fulfill this, this salvation that he has um, orchestrated for us. Um, 
Romans 5, 8 says, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, very familiar verse for everybody. John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world, so loved the world that he gave his only son that whomever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So, so we hear that, but some of us, uh, the, the rub comes when we talk about the concept of election as exclusive. If God only elects some, does that then mean that he's purposed others who are not elect to spend an eternity away from him? Does God create people with no possibility of going to heaven, essentially predestining those people to hell regardless of their choices? And so before we go on in our discussion, I want to I want to I want to walk through what I encourage you to do is we take the entirety of scripture before we formulate a doctrine. And I want to walk us through some verses that talk about God's love for the world, God's God's desire for the salvation of all. Lest we think that election is that God doesn't love the world and is only interested in a few people. Um, We see some of those verses outlined, but let's balance those out with some of the verses that talk about God's heart for the world. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 1 John 2, 2 through 3 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have, over, that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Ezekiel 18.23 says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? 1 Timothy 2.5-6 tells us that there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Titus 2.11-14 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. First Timothy 2, 1-4 says, for, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. So here we see the heart of God for the world, the love of God, that he wishes and desires salvation for everybody. But here's where we start to get into the tricky part. We have a God who, who has made salvation essentially uh, a desire of his for all people, but we know that most will not walk into salvation. We know that from Scripture. Scripture talks about the path is wide that leads to destruction. Many will follow it. The path is narrow that leads to salvation, and few will travel it. So we've got God who desires all to be saved, but we've got God also saying a, a, a great majority of people will not be saved. They seem to be contradictory, don't they? Which one's true? Does God elect people to salvation independent from anything other than his own will? Or does God desire and make available salvation to all that would believe? The answer is yes. Yes to both. That's what we're going to spend some time looking at this morning. So, so we have this, this idea or this, this, this position that scripture outlines that says, God desires all to be saved, but not all will be saved. And this is where we have to be careful because it's at this point 
that we're going to have to fight the tendency to take God off of his throne and to put him in the judgment seat. It's at this time that we are most tempted to side with the unnamed objector that's present in Romans 9 that says, God, this doesn't seem fair. God's not giving everyone the same opportunity. Therefore, God is not giving us what we deserve. And this is, this is, this is where our problem is. Many of us, Christians even, myself especially, have a tendency to minimize and trivialize sin in our own lives and in our own past. There's some people that uh, their lives before Christ were so outside the bounds of society uh, that, that, that all the world would have looked at this person and said, it's clear that there's something evil within you and you need help. And so those people find Christ. God brings them into a relationship with him changes their lives, renews their hearts, changes their very being. And you see these people as some of the greatest examples of election and action ever. They are so quick to point to, look at who I was before and look at who I am now. Look at what the Lord has done in my life. And I love those people. I love being around those people because there's no qualms about it in their lives. They can clearly see, and the world could clearly see, hey, look, everybody was in agreement. You weren't so swift before. Now you're saved. And look at the change. But there's others of us, and we have a tendency to think of ourselves as decent people, right? Society tells us we're pretty good. Um, We don't cause any real trouble. We're relatively nice to those around us. Uh, We might even sometimes genuinely display acts of kindness, love, and charity to other people. And so society says, hey, you're a pretty good person, and we tend to believe the lie. So we're not lost, right? The hope's not gone for those people. And there's times where, um, and if you're like me in this, where it was hard to identify your sin because it wasn't so overt. You believe in your own self-righteousness, but you're confronted with who God is. And you're confronted with true righteousness. And you see that you fall short. I fall short of God's requirement. And I recognize my need for a savior. And I walk into relationship with God, right? And it's a beautiful thing. But for these people, and I being the, the chief in this group, uh, it's very easy for us to forget the nature and severity of the sin that once so separated us from God. We can look back at our lives and, and think, I don't really remember what I was doing that was so bad. And I can pick that lie back up that was told to me earlier that, hey, I was a pretty good person. And so then I start to look at God's declarations on sin and his prohibitions against sin and his declarations of his holiness, and I can start to get the idea of, wow, God, your views of sin are a little extreme, aren't they? I mean, come on, everybody sins. And it's not until each one of us realizes that our own individual sin was enough to send Christ to the cross. And that's what I want you to think about right now. Do you really believe, and I want you to be honest with yourself because this is a tough question, do you really believe that had you been the only human on the earth that Christ would have still needed to come, die, and be resurrected to bring you into, re- into relationship with the Father? And, and be, careful, be careful before you say yes too quickly. Because that's the, that's the answer that we're conditioned to give. But my real question for you right now is, do you believe that? Do you believe your sin was so serious before God that it required the death of Christ to redeem just you? And it's not until we realize that truth that we can really understand the seriousness of sin and the power of the cross. If I minimize my sin, I minimize the cross itself. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon was uh, a a very prolific pastor, uh, mostly based out of England in in the early to mid-1800s, incredibly intelligent and articulate guy. Um, He he was called the the Prince of Preachers, uh, 
if that does anything for you. <laughs> but listen to how he said, I leaned heavily on him for, for this sermon, but listen to what he, he answers in the accusations of God's unfairness in electing some and not others. Charles Spurgeon says, you tell me if God has chosen some men to eternal life that he has been unjust. I ask you to prove it. The burden of proof lies with you. For I would have you remember that none merited this at all. Is there one man in the whole world who would have the impertinence to say that he merits anything of his maker? If so, be it known unto you that he shall have all he merits, and his reward will be the flames of hell forever. For that is the utmost that any man ever merited of God. If God gives to every man as much as he merits, is he therefore to be accused of injustice because he gives to some infinitely more than they merit? Where is the injustice of a man doing as he wills with his own? Has he not a right to give what he pleases? We see this illustrated for us very well uh, in, in Matthew 21 through 16. Jesus is telling a parable about the laborers in the vineyard. The parable says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After greeting, or after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, because, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. So when we approach this doctrine of election, election rightly understood is not God electing some to salvation and unjustly sending other people to damnation. But what it is is God being perfectly just with everybody but a certain group, he pours out his mercy. And that's the definition of mercy's unmerited favor. Everyone who's been saved did not deserve it. It was unmerited. But we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So we're saved by this act of unmerited favor. Spurgeon says again here, but there are some who say, it is hard for God to choose some and leave others. Now I will ask you one question. Is there any of you here this morning who wishes to be holy, who wishes to be regenerate, to leave off sin and walk in holiness? Yes, there is, says someone, I do. Then God has elected you. But another says, no, I do not want to be holy. I do not want to give up my lusts and my vices. Why should you grumble then that God has not elected you to it? For if you were elected, you would not like it, according to your own confession. If God this morning had chosen you to holiness, you say you would not care for it. Do you not acknowledge that you prefer drunkenness to sobriety, dishonesty to honesty? You love this world's pleasures better than religion. Then why should you grumble that God has not chosen you to religion? If you love religion, he has chosen you to it. If you desire it, he has chosen you to it. If you do not, what right have you to say that God ought to have given you what you do not wish for? Ah, but, says some, I thought it meant that God elected some to heaven and some to hell. That is a very different matter from the gospel doctrine. 
he has elected men to holiness and to righteousness and through that to heaven. You must not say that he has elected them simply to heaven and others only to hell. He has elected you to holiness if you love holiness. If any of you love to be saved by Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ elected you to be saved. If any of you desire to have salvation, you are elected to have it, if you desire it sincerely and earnestly. But if you don't desire it, why on earth should you be so preposterously foolish as to grumble because God gives that which you do not like to other people? So, so here you, you see this idea that um, God is not, the doctrine of election does not teach, and God is not saying that there is a portion of people that earnestly desire to come to Jesus and have a saving relationship with him, and God looks at those people and says, I'm sorry, you're not elect by me, therefore I am not going to extend the salvation that you so, so desperately desire. And that, that's not a biblical concept at all. Now, there are some people that will argue um, from the doctrine of election that that is what it says, um, but that's not the biblical account. That's not the, that's not the gospel doctrine of election. Election is not saying that God is saying no to people that desperately want to come to him. What it's saying is that most of the world, all of the world, definitely all of the world is walking in sin and deserves death. And so to a majority of those, God is saying, okay, you have made your choice. But to a certain amount of people, he is bringing them into salvation. And he is doing the work as the author and founder of their faith to bring them into that relationship with him. So God's not forcing any to reject. So, so in our passage, we read about him hardening Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes we, again, this unnamed objector box up, then who can resist God's will if he hardens the heart? The hardening of the heart is not God saying, this person is good and I'm forcing them to be bad. The hardening of the heart is God saying, this is the choice that you've made and I'm reaffirming that choice that you've made. That choice is ratified because the fruits of your life show that you reject the gospel doctrine. So, God isn't forcing the non-elect to reject Christ, but rather giving them over to their own sin, which produces death. So it's God's sovereignty and man's responsibility mysteriously intertwined in this. And it is a mystery, and it's a difficult-to-understand concept that we really wrestle with. Um, So how do our choices interact with God's election? If it depends not on our own actions but on God's mercy, then what part do we play in our own salvation? If Christ is both the author and perfecter of our faith and he's elected us before the foundation of the earth... How does that interact with my submission before Christ, right? It's, it's by grace through faith um, that we're saved. And that not of your own works, but that no man may boast. So, so this is where we have to be honest a little bit. We have to, to honestly declare that um, we don't know how this works, right? It's not specifically addressed in the text. Paul is not going to go on in the rest of Romans 9 and 10 to tell us these are the conditions that God uses to choose who is elect, and this is exactly how your choice for walking into a relationship, because it, it, in a certain sense it is a choice, right? God doesn't force anybody to come to him. He, can, he, he works in conjunction with us to elect us to salvation, and then we agree with that by entering into this relationship. And it's a very mysterious thing, and we're not quite sure exactly how that happens. Um, some of the things that, that Scripture talks about are, are, are alluding to what, what's called God's secret will, right? God's got two primary wills. He's got his secret will, and he's got his revealed will. So Scripture, in large part, is his revealed will to us. He has revealed how to be saved. He has revealed his, his desire for all to be saved. He has given us the Great Commission, right? All of these things we can say, this is the will of God, the Ten Commandments, a, a, very, a very good list of things that God's willed. But... God also has a secret will. And sometimes those things can can work in conjunction, and sometimes they can also appear to be working in confliction with each other. 
And, and let me just give you a quick example of this. Um, in the Ten Commandments, we, we, we had a great sermon series through there. We, we learn of God's commandment that you, thou shalt not murder. God's decreed will is that man should not murder. Yet God sent his son to be murdered. So was it God's will that Jesus was murdered? Yes and no. No in the sense that he decrees that I don't want anybody to murder. And the people that did murder God or did murder Jesus, that did hang him on the cross, are fully responsible and guilty before God for breaking the commandment of thou shalt not murder. But God also, in conjunction with that, purposed before the foundation of time that Christ would die, that he would be murdered. And so these two things seem to be conflicting, but they're not. And it's a, again, it's a mystery and, and uh, be wary of anybody who's going to get in front of you and say, I'm going to explain to you exactly how this mystery works. It's, it's a very, a very mysterious thing, but we see both of these ideas, both of these wills present in scripture. So, so another common pushback or problem that people have with election is the idea that God could save everyone, but he doesn't. And, and that's a tough thing, right? If we, if we, if we see God who clearly loves the world as, as Christ's died for the sins of the world. He's, he's, he's made salvation in one essence uh, or the mechanism available to all people, but we see that not everybody is saved. What does that say about God? What does that say about his justice? What does that say about his love? What does that say about his mercy? These are tough questions and not easy to answer. And we shouldn't have a, just a flip answer to say, but scripture does give us insights into this. God is loving and loves all people, but not all are going to be saved. So what we do know from scripture is that no one deserves salvation, but that some will receive it. That's, that's rarely argued by, by Christians of any denomination or leaning, is that, that nobody deserves salvation, but there's a, there's a portion of the population that will be saved. But if God could elect all, and we maintain he could, why doesn't he? Romans nine twenty two through 23 talks about this. Paul says here, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So here we see vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Well, what does that mean? And, and again, lots of interpretations about this, but he, he draws a very different delineation when he talks about uh, vessels prepared for glory. In, in the vessels prepared for destruction, uh, it's just said, said just as that, vessels prepared for destruction. Vessels that are prepared for glory, though, he makes a, a slight difference here, which is significant. Vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So, so this is still a mystery, right? This doesn't really, if, if I was presenting that as this is going to clear it all up for us, I might have sold that one a little too big. It's still a mystery. But we can surmise from this that God purposed election for his own glory and as a means of demonstrating his great mercy. And while we don't really necessarily understand why he has done it this way, we can see that this is the way he's done it. He's orchestrated salvation in this way, which means that if he were to do anything differently, and primarily that's what this verse teaches, this way maximizes his glory and his mercy. And him being perfect, if he were to do anything differently, his glory and his mercy would not be as fully demonstrated as it is in this purpose of election. And, and before you're too quick, as I was at one point, uh, to dismiss this task of defending God's justice is only the problem that the elected position takes, let me show you how we must all wrestle with the question of God's goodness, fairness, and love, regardless of our views of salvation. For, for if we believe that God is all-powerful, outside of time and space and all-knowing, then we believe that he's not only in control of all that happens, but he knows all the choices that we're going to make at every point in our life, right? This idea that we could ever make a decision or an action 
that would take God by surprise or catch him off guard is, is laughable. He knows everything. He's completely perfect in his knowledge. He's outside of time and space. But the one who doubts God's election is good and instead states that it's unjust, we must see that this problem does still exist all around. So let's assume for a minute, and I believe this assumption to be contrary to Scripture, but, scripture, but let's just go here for a minute. Let's assume that man's free will choice is the sole catalyst for salvation. Let's, let's assume that God makes salvation available to all, but only those who choose their salvation by their own free will will receive it. If God can look to the future and know in the end if we will choose Christ or not, then that means he knows before bringing each person into existence where they will spend their eternal destiny. If, therefore, he knows this absolutely, then is he unjust in bringing life to those he knows will ultimately reject him? Would we not join or be tempted to join in with the unnamed objector in accusing God and stating that the more loving thing to do would be to only bring into existence those people who would actually choose him in the first place? Why not only create those who would choose you and not create those who would not? But you might say people should have, the, have life and they should have the ability to make the choice for themselves. Then their destination will be on their own heads. And this is where we have to be careful. Our focus on um, individual liberty, free will choice, uh, freedom, is ingrained in us, especially in America. And, and these things are good things. They're not bad things, right? But we, we deify freedom of choice. We deify personal liberty. Uh, in a lot of areas, we, we take this to, to an extreme. And so even if, even if you had this choice, I would put it to you that that, that choice would still be secondary to God's will. Because he created them, he would have created this person before they would have had the ability to choose, still fully knowing what they would choose and what they would not. So at the end, even in this other mechanism, we're still seeing that God's choice is first and foremost above any choice or decision that the person makes, choice to bring life. So it's at this point where uh, we can be tempted to kind of just say, look, this this is all nice, or this is all confusing, or... Uh, we see it in Scripture. We see both sides in Scripture. Um, so what? You know, what does it matter? I'm saved. That's all I care about. Or I know God is, is purpose salvation. Um, and, and we start to maybe wonder, hey, is there any practicality for this doctrine? Is there any real reason to spend time thinking through this and praying through it and struggling through it? And so what I want to say is absolutely yes. As, as I've experienced in, in the last uh, period of time, especially as I was preparing for this message, I I would emphatically say that this is one of the most practical doctrines that that exists in Scripture. When we clearly understand who we are and we begin to understand who God is, our world will change. So I want to lay out two encouragements for us this morning, one for the skeptic or the non-Christian and another one for the believer. So to any of you here today that sit in your seat and you're not quite a Christian, I shouldn't say it that way, you're either a Christian or you're not, but you're not a Christian. You, you're, you're maybe you're a little bit, you're far from God. And you're wondering, you're hearing this and you're saying, I don't even know if it's possible to be saved. Now you're telling me it's not just my choice, but I have to be part of this group that's called the elect. I don't even know if I'm the elect. I want to I put it to you that, that, that you're focusing on the wrong thing. And here's where I want to take your eyes off of election and I want to put them fully on the cross of Christ. God is wooing you and working in your life to bring you face to face with him through the gospel. The fact that you're here this morning right now is an act of his mercy and grace. The fact that you're listening to the gospel 
probably mostly correct as I'm saying it, but I've heard a lot of theologians say 10 to 20% of my theology is wrong, and the problem is I don't know which 10 to 20% it is. But the fact that you're listening to the gospel right now, you're listening to the unrefutable fact that Christ died for you. And through that death, burial, and resurrection, he desires to bring you to the Father. And that if you walk in that relationship, if you love and trust in Christ, you will be saved. The fact that you're hearing this message is proof of God's love and his mercy for you. This is proof that he desires to be in relationship with you. The Holy Spirit right now is at war within your own heart, convicting you of the truth of the gospel, pointing you to the cross of Christ, telling you, yield, relent, walk in relationship to Christ. It's the job of the Spirit. You have that uneasy feeling in your stomach sometimes when you're hearing gospel doctrines or you think about God. That's the Spirit wooing you and pushing you to Christ. If that's true, then it's also true that you can be saved. And we see this a little bit later in Romans 10. Romans 10 through 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A little later in this chapter, in 10.13, he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what I want you to do is I want you to see God for who he really is, the sovereign creator who has purposed salvation. I want you to see his son, Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, while we still hated Christ. He came and lovingly died for us. We didn't do anything to motivate him to do this. It was his own love that drove him to the cross. The Holy Spirit at this moment is at war within you. I I want you to see all of this and I want you to embrace your heavenly father as he longs to embrace you as his child. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 2 says, working together with him then we appeal to you not to receive the gospel, not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do not delay. Embrace your Savior and be redeemed. What about for the believer? What does this doctrine of election do to us? We're already saved. Why do we need to understand this? Is it just for ministry? Is it just to tell other people? It is for that, but not just for that. I want you to see the great encouragement these truths gives to us as as believers. God elected you. God purposed salvation in your life before the foundation of the world. Nothing you have ever done in your life has inclined God's heart to love you. And nothing you have ever done or will ever do in life will incline God's heart away from you. It is not based on your worth, on your actions, or your own righteousness. God's love for you is based on his character. He is love, and he has chosen to love you because that's who he is. Listen again to the words of Charles Spurgeon. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Maybe you're sitting here today, as I have so often sat there before, and you're looking at your own life and saying, I don't even know if I'm saved. I wonder if I'm even a Christian. I look at the things in my heart, And I look at the things that I've done, 
And I think if I was God, I wouldn't bother with me. I wouldn't save me. Paul, you're in good company. Paul, a couple of chapters early, goes through this process of the things I don't want to do or the things I do and the things I've, I hate to do. These are the very things that I do. Maybe you're wondering, am I really saved? And this is where I'm going to point you as well to Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you done that? Is that still your confession today? You'll say, yes, it is, but I've done this. Or yes, it is, but I haven't done that. And here you've proven the very salvation that you're questioning. The Holy Spirit's purpose, one of the Holy Spirit's purposes in your life is to bring conviction of sin. But that conviction is not meant to bring condemnation. It's to motivate repentance and change. But see the enemy right on the doorstep seeking to bring condemnation to you, seeking to utilize those doubts and those thoughts that you have to show you and to prove to you that you're not a child of God. But Romans 8.1 tells that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to read again the words that Charles so powerfully read, uh, our Charles, not Charles Spurgeon, uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, as we were walking through the end of Romans 8. Um, Romans 8, 31 through 39 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution or famine, or nakedness or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Child of God, you are inseparable from your heavenly Father. And it's not because you're strong. It's not because of your will or your own fortitude, but it's because of his. And see the freedom that this brings us. Nothing within us caused God to love us. Nothing within us will cause God to love us less. There is freedom for us to rest in that relationship. So I want you to rest in the security of your Father and take heart, for Jesus has overcome the world. You are clothed in Christ's righteousness. You are more than conquerors. You are children. And there's so much more that we could say on this. There's so much more that I'm tempted to say on this. But I want to just point us back to two simple truths that we've seen this morning. First, starting in Romans 9:16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Election is the ultimate expression of God being for us. So I want you to rest in that assurance today. Rejoice in the mercy and salvation of your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed by your love, by who you are, by what you've done in our lives. Christ, we are in awe that while we still hated you, 
you would purpose your death, burial and resurrection to save us. Father, how comforting it is for us to realize that nothing we did caused you to love us and how securing it is to realize that nothing we can do will ever cause you to love us less. Let us never use that as an excuse to sin, Father, but to to drive a deep sense of gratitude and humility to humbly praise you, enthusiastically serve you, and desperately share you with the world around us. Father, this gospel of election is such a motivator for us to take your words to the end of the world. Help us to live these truths in ourselves first and foremost, Lord. Help us to experience the love and security that you long to show us. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit as we've listened to difficult doctrines this morning that you would point us each individually into all truth. Thank you for your love, God, an overwhelming love that says and shows and demonstrates that you first loved us. Help us to see that, and the response will be an overwhelming love back to you and a gratitude for what you've done in our lives. Lord, as we remember your sacrifice this morning, keep us in that truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.